0: Welcome to the National Civic Council's podcast, A Stronger Australia. The National Civic Council has advocated for the Australian people since its founding by Bob Santamaria in the early 1940s. Today, it advocates for an economically and culturally strong Australia, which protects the vulnerable and supports the family as the cornerstone of society. During our podcast, we hear from a wide variety of speakers and experts on how to create a better Australia. We hope you enjoy.
1: Welcome to the NCC and Newsweekly podcast. I'm Peter Culliher, editor of Newsweekly. Newsweekly is available in print and online at www.ncc.org.au forward Newsweekly. In our latest issue, we cover why we need a classical education curriculum teaching the virtues, why federal labor has no taste for religious freedom, Taiwan wanting to join Interpol, Victoria's death toll from euthanasia. The vulnerability of our computers to hacking depends on how security conscious we are. Part 2 of Spinning the Tavistock Closure Story. We ask if climate change really is causing more climate catastrophes. We have reviews of a book on Alexander Solzhenitsyn's journey through the bloody 20th century and a piece on the timelessness of three great composers, Bach, Mozart and Beethoven. Today I have two interviews for the NCC News Weekly podcast. First I will speak with NCC President Pat Byrne on our 2022 Fighting Fund and the sacking of Essendon Football Club Chief Executive Andrew Thorburn. And then we will hear from Peter Westmore on the Ukraine forces advancing against the invading force of Vladimir Putin. Let me welcome Pat Byrne.
2: Nice to be here, Peter. Pat, what is the NCC Fighting Fund? It's our most important fundraising campaign for Newsweekly readers and our avid supporters. You can donate online at www.ncc.org.au. We've raised around 114000 and we are seeking another 140 by Christmas. It's to help us train and educate a new force of people to take on the major external and internal threats we faced and to transform our culture along the line of the five primacies of the NCC – that is the integrity of the human person from natural conception to natural death, the family as the bedrock of society, decentralization of political and economic power and population, patriotism, that's defending the economic independence as well as the political sovereignty of Australia, and finally, the universal virtues as a cement that holds society together. For this job, we appreciate your generous donations for bringing together the creative minority necessary for this increasingly urgent task. Pat, what are the major external threats that we face? Well, Australia's defence strategists have just changed from being no foreseeable threat to recognise the nation faces imminent threats, and our Defence Department is scrambling to reset its strategic thinking to urgently purchase necessary military equipment. At the same time, the government is desperately struggling to maintain regional alliances as Beijing attempts to build ties in our region with a view to establishing military bases that would threaten Australia's long, vulnerable supply chains and undersea communications and infrastructure. At the same time, after 50 years of de-industrialisation, Under fundamentalist free trade policies, the government is now trying to find ways rapidly to build the strategic industries Australia will need in the event of regional conflicts. However, with the federal and most state governments bent on replacing low-cost baseload coal-fired power stations with intermittent wind and solar energy and with electricity prices forecast to rise 35% next year, the task of rebuilding Australia's industrial sector is rendered almost impossible. Recently, the NCC held a roundtable with a view to putting together our submission to this new defence strategic inquiry the government is holding.
1: And what are the internal threats that we face, Pat?
2: i put it this way. Whereas many states in the US are adopting pro-life, pro-family and religious freedom policies, Australia's state, territory and federal governments have almost uniformly adopted radical secularist agendas. Many conservatives are being pushed out of politics and corporate jobs. Moreover, the membership base of the major parties is aging and rapidly declining. Therefore, we see that we've got a major role to play in educating and training a new force of people to take up the challenges we are now facing both externally and internally. And for that reason, we are asking people to donate to our fighting fund. Pat,
1: the removal of Essendon Football Club CEO Andrew Thorburn is typical of the threats to our freedoms of religion and association. You have a feature in The Weekend Australian and in News Weekly on this issue. Tell me, why was Andrew Thorburn pushed out of the Essendon Football Club
2: Thornburn was pushed out of the Essendon Football Club largely because the AFL and Essendon Football Club ignored or violated the AFL's own code of conduct and that sparked a nationwide debate on religious freedom. So what was his sin? His sin was guilt by association. He was attacked not over anything he'd said but over two sermons delivered in 2013 by a minister at his church, City on a Hill, which is Anglican-affiliated. That's those sermons we're discussing the topics of abortion and safe sex relationships. Both of them were within the context of traditional Christian teachings and beliefs, and yet he was condemned by the Victorian Premier, Daniel Andrews, who slammed him, saying the views of his church were absolutely appalling, promoting hatred and bigotry. And it was about 30 hours later that Thorburn resigned from his appointment. He was also attacked by Roe Allen, the Victorian Equal Opportunity and Human Rights Commissioner, who sided with Essendon's religious persecution of Thorburn, applauding the club for standing up to their values.
1: Pat, did Thorburn have any public supporters?
2: Well, reflecting an old saying, I have my football faith on Saturday and my church faith on Sunday. One of the the father of Essendon club legend, James Hurd, his name's Alan Hurd, said he was raised a Catholic by his mother and given his love of the Essendon Club by his father. However, he asked in a letter to the club, am I not welcome at Essendon anymore? By implication, he was sort of asking how many others of the AFL's 700 employees, 1,000 plus elite athletes and 1.4 million participants are also left asking the question, am I no longer welcome in the AFL? because of my religious beliefs. Also coming to his support was the Catholic Archbishop of Melbourne, Peter surley who pointed out it was the Premier's comments that were harmful, saying the Premier's own words about his beliefs and how they play out for the sake of others have tended towards the harmful because they have sought to uphold the good of one by undermining the good of another.
1: The AFL's chief executive, Gillan McLaughlin, made it appear that Thorburn's resignation as Essendon's CEO, was the result of a conflict between religious beliefs and the values and culture of the Essendon club. He said a decision had to be made. Was a choice really necessary?
2: Essendon is a football club. Its business is to win grand finals and bring excitement and joy to the sport, to players and fans, not to be a moral judge between religious beliefs and differing cultural values. Further, the AFL's own vilification framework says that no person should vilify or insult another person or disparage them on the basis of their race, religion, color, descent or national, ethnic origin, special ability or disability or sexual orientation, preference or identity. So despite religion, sex and sexual orientation all being protected against vilification, clearly the Essendon Club leaders demonstrated that sex and sexual orientation rights take priority over religious rights. Indeed, McLaughlin said he supported Thorburn, a personal friend, but backed Essendon's position.
1: Also drawn into the debate was the visiting Archbishop of Canterbury, Justin Welby, who said, and I quote, we have not found a way of disagreeing without exclusion, without cancelling people. We invariably end up setting one group's rights against another group's rights, close quote. Pat, is there a way to avoid pitting one group's rights against the rights of others?
2: Well, to the contrary of what Justin Welby said, Australian and Western-style democracies once had a way of not pitting one person's rights against another's. We had a tried and true means of respecting all without cancelling anyone. It was called tolerance. Of all the forms of government, tolerant democracies deliver the highest degree of personal freedom and respect for human rights. But they didn't just happen. They were forged out of the bitter and bloody 16th and 17th century wars of religion, or also known as the wars of the Reformation and Counter-Reformation, which cost millions of lives in Europe and Britain. The combatants were influenced by rival religious beliefs, although religion was only one contributor to these conflicts. These wars ended with a series of treaties effectively declaring that people would tolerate each other's beliefs and live peaceably. Later, they were underpinned by the Universal Declaration of Human Rights and the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights after World War II. It was a case of either tolerant peace or endless brutal wars. The late British theologian and philosopher Rabbi Jonathan Sachs explained what a tolerant state is. He said, it aims not so much at the truth, but at peace. It is a political necessity, not a religious imperative. And it arises when people have lived through the alternative, the war of all against all. Tolerance means to allow the existence, occurrence or practice of something that one dislikes or disagrees with without interference. It derives from the Latin tolerantia, meaning to bear with or endure with. Tolerance is how we respect differences with others. The French Enlightenment philosopher Voltaire demonstrated the meaning. He strongly disagreed with a book written by philosopher claude Adrian Helvetius. And Voltaire sort of summed it up this way, not in his own words, but by a later historian. I wholly disapprove of what you say, but will defend to the death your right to say it. A tolerant democracy allows for a pluralist society that encourages autonomy for the individual bodies in preference to monolithic state control, where members of minority groups maintain their independence and their cultural traditions. This is the essence of diversity. So tolerance is the foundation of pluralism and diversity. It is required by football clubs and corporations, as much as by political systems, to create a truly free society. Pat,
1: are you saying then that there are parallels between the bloody wars of religion and today's conflicts over competing rights?
2: Peter, sadly, the Thorburn affair and the sacking of Israel Folau demonstrate today's threats to the inherent human rights to freedom of belief and freedom of association. In a striking parallel to the religious conflicts several hundred years ago, today's anti-discrimination laws and codes of conduct unnecessarily pit one group's LGBT sexual ethics against the religious and cultural heritage of other groups. Several hundred years ago, it was the brutal physical war of all against all. Today, what we risk is the legal war of all against all if cultural uniformity is imposed at the expense of tolerance, cultural diversity and pluralism.
1: Is there a solution?
2: Anti-discrimination laws and codes of conduct are generating unnecessary conflicts between contending rights, without any recognition of the tolerance necessary for conflicted beliefs to coexist, and for polite yet passionate disagreement. Incredibly, the AFL's vilification code nowhere speaks of tolerance. It should. It needs a clause for tolerance between two different ethical and moral beliefs, so long as a belief does not cause incitement to hatred, to cause violence, or serious breach of the peace. This is needed if we are not to witness more people being persecuted and sacked from the AFL over guilt by association with others expressing their moral convictions. So once tolerance is restored, we can all get on with enjoying our preferred religions.
1: Thanks very much, Pat.
2: Nice to be with you, Peter.
1: And now I'm pleased to introduce Peter Westmore, who has written in the latest News Weekly on the continuing war in Ukraine, and Putin's latest measure of raining missiles on civilian targets. Welcome, Peter. Hello, Peter. The war in Ukraine has been going on for nearly eight months now, and most people are getting sick of it and just want it to end. What is the current position on the
3: ground in Ukraine? Well, Peter, there have been several phases of the war. Initially, Russia made very big advances. They threatened both the capital city, Kiev, and the second largest city in Ukraine, Kharkiv. However, Ukrainian defenders stopped the Russians before they could capture either city, and they destroyed huge quantities of Russia's best military equipment, and thousands of Russia's best troops died in the course of that offensive. So the result was that we moved on to another phase, or the next phase, where Russia was forced to retreat from Kyiv, but it continued offensives in the east and the south of Ukraine. It captured the provincial city of or capital of Kurzon, It captured the transport hub of Lyman and the Black Sea coastline between Donbass and Crimea, including the city of Mariupol. Now, that then, it's moved on from there because there was then a period of several months of stalemate. But with the assistance of precision Western-supplied artillery, rockets and missiles, the Ukrainian forces have mounted several major counterattacks. They've relieved the siege on Kharkiv. They've recaptured thousands of square kilometres in the north-east of Ukraine, pushing the Russian forces right back to the Russian border, and are now advancing towards Kherson in the south. So, militarily, I'd say that the war has shifted decisively in favor of Ukraine. What has been Putin's response? Well, President Putin responded to the Ukrainian advances with threats of nuclear war, and then he unleashed a wave of terror on Ukraine with missile attacks on cities across the country, most of which, by the way, are nowhere near the war zone, and more recently with targeted attacks on Ukraine's electricity infrastructure, particularly power stations. And his clear intention here is that the Ukrainian people freeze during winter. So how has
1: the Ukrainian population responded to the war?
3: Well, the most telling fact, at least to me, is that when the invasion began and extremely vulnerable Ukraine immediately began to conscript young men into its defense forces, thousands of Ukrainians returned to Ukraine from Western Europe, where they were working to serve. The morale of both the military and civilians throughout the course of the war has been surprisingly high. In recent months, this has been reinforced by Ukraine's successes on the battlefield, and in special operations, such as the holding of Snake Island, or was lost and then recaptured in the Black Sea, the siege of Mariupol, which went on for nearly two months before the remaining Ukrainian defenders surrendered, the sinking of the Moskva, the flagship of Moscow's Black Sea fleet, and the bombing of the Kirsch Bridge, which links Crimea to Russia. So, Overall, the Ukrainians have had good reason to think that the war has shifted in their favour.
1: And what has been the response of the Russian population to developments over the past eight months?
3: Well, in the early months of the war, there was very active support for Putin's invasion from the Russian parliament, from the Russian Orthodox Church and from the Russian nationalist community. However, this has severely eroded with the setbacks that Russia has suffered. There have been protests across Russia and thousands of people have been arrested. There has been unprecedented criticism of Putin in nationalist and military circles, which can be monitored and have been monitored from the West. And hundreds of thousands of young Russians are reported to have left the country to escape being conscripted to fight in Ukraine. Is Putin's grip on power secure? Well, for the moment, I'd say undoubtedly it is. But the war has opened up cracks in Russian society and in Putin's own base of support. The long-term consequences of this are unpredictable, but will clearly depend upon the progress of the war in the months ahead.
1: And what is likely to happen in the months ahead?
3: Well, it depends, I think, on whether the US and Western Europe continue to supply the Ukrainians with the means of defending themselves. There's no doubt that the provision of advanced missile technology and Continued supply of arms and other military equipment to the Ukrainian forces has made it possible for the Ukrainians, who are outnumbered, to be able to effectively counter Russia's larger military force. But we don't know really whether that supply will continue into the weeks and months ahead.
1: The US midterm elections will be held on November the 8th. Will these elections affect America's support for the independence of
3: Ukraine? In the United States, both sides in the US Congress are strongly supportive of the Ukrainian government. Biden has been a consistent supporter of Ukraine and he's certainly given billions of dollars in military aid. However, there is always the fear that he will try to negotiate a settlement. This war is costly for America, and there will be pressures on him to come to a deal or to try and reach a settlement, as he did in Afghanistan, which led to the defeat of the pro-Western government. I've suggested previously that Biden will fight Putin to the last Ukrainian. But if, as seems likely, the Republicans strengthen their position in the Congress, I think this will lead to even more support for Ukraine, because Russia under Putin is seen as one of the United States' strategic enemies. China's support for Putin confirms the Republican position.
1: Is there any prospect of a ceasefire?
3: There's been talk about a ceasefire, including from some people in Australia, but a ceasefire only comes about if both sides come to the conclusion that they cannot continue the war. Neither Putin nor Ukraine's President Zelensky have shown any sign that they would accept a ceasefire. Putin's future depends upon winning in Ukraine, and Zelensky, in my opinion, would probably be overthrown by his own people if he tried to do a deal with Putin. So at the moment I don't see any prospect of a of a ceasefire. Peter the northern winter is
1: coming very soon. What effect will this have?
3: Well winters in Ukraine and Russia are brutally cold. Snow covers the ground for months on end. The temperatures fall way below zero. Minus 40 degrees is a fairly typical temperature over there, you know, for weeks on end. And then on top of that, not only is there snow on the ground, but that snow turns to mud as it melts. So the campaigning season in Ukraine is generally considered to be almost impossible from sometime late November through to the end of February. It's interesting, when Putin launched his attack, it was on the 24th of February. It was just at the start of, if you like, the military campaigning season over there. Russia's policy over the next few months will be to try to hold on to all of the territory they've seized until spring, and then to resume their offensive operations to conquer Ukraine. The Ukrainians, on the other hand, will use their precision missiles, rockets and artillery to attack Russia's highly centralised control and command centres, its ammunition and fuel dumps, food and equipment supplies, so as to make life unbearable for Russian soldiers on the front line. If they detect any weakness appearing in the Russian lines, I think Ukraine is likely to strike hard even during winter in order to try to cause a military collapse of the Russian position. I think Ukraine in the immediate future is likely to push hard to try to regain control of the provincial capital of Kurzon if the opportunity presents before the end of 2022. It's likely, however, that the war will extend into 2023. But the momentum is very much in favour of Ukraine. And that's why we have to continue to support the Ukrainians in whatever way is possible.
1: Thanks so much, Peter. Read, learn, be informed and enjoy. Newsweekly is available in print and online at www.ncc.org.au forward slash Newsweekly.
0: Thank you for listening to the National Civic Council's podcast, A Stronger Australia. The National Civic Council is a non-party political movement which seeks to build a strong and prosperous nation. Through our policy, research and advocacy, we stand up against the greatest threats to the family and the Australian way of life. The NCC also produces the fortnightly magazine News Weekly, which covers all topics relating to a stronger Australia. Subscribe at ncc.org.au forward slash newsweekly. We look forward to joining you for our next episode. Thank you for listening.